you're not alone. I think we can feel like our experience is happening just to us. Like we are the only one going through depression or anxiety or even worse, like it is us that's suffering. But the reality of the nature of all of our lives is that we will all suffer, right? And if we can actually remember that, if we can remember that as a byproduct of our evolution, our ancestors have suffered <laughs> and they have overcome that. And so it is in our DNA that we can overcome suffering. That's not poetic or spiritual, it's fact. Like we can overcome things. Everybody, Emily Abadi here coming to you from the AAG studio. You are listening to episode 208 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential and of course, have some fun along the way. For today's episode, I am sitting down with Manoj Dias. He is the co-founder and vice president of mindfulness at Open, a modern mindfulness studio merging technology, culture, cinematography, and proven practices to create community and presence. We talk all about the particulars of what Open is and how he got to this place in today's episode. I was so excited to have the opportunity to sit down with Manoj in their Venice space out in Los Angeles and was so intrigued by his backstory. In today's episode, Dias talks to me about being born in Sri Lanka and becoming a meditation and mindfulness teacher after a decade spent working in marketing and finance in Australia. He talks to me about the hurdle moment that brought about this big career shift. And we get into a really beautiful discussion about how each of us can become more present, how breathwork and meditation actually feed off of one another and the importance of rituals in our day to day. Again, loved this conversation, was such a nice kickoff to my time last week in Los Angeles. I myself have been using Open regularly. I'm gonna talk about that a little bit into the episode, but if you too wanna get in on Open and give it a try for yourself, you can head on over to withopen.com, that's W-I-T-H-O-P-E-N.com slash hurdle and get 30 days free just for hurdle listeners. Again, that is with open.com slash hurdle. There you can try meditation classes, breathwork classes, and movement classes. Make sure you're following along with Hurdle over on social media. It's at Hurdle Podcast. I myself am over at Emily Abadi. And with that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I am sitting down with Manaj, the co-founder and vice president of Mindfulness for Open. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, I think I said to you right off the bat, I'm feeling good because finally I'm in LA for a weekend and I had plenty of rest, plenty of this beautiful sunshine. So I feel really good. This beautiful sunshine. Although every time I come to LA, I like wake up on that first morning and the marine layer throws me for a loop. Yeah. Because yeah. I think to myself, it's always sunny in LA. And then I look out the window and I've got a gray morning, but it's burning off. I saw it on the way over here. <laughs> I'm ready to get in a hearty dose of vitamin D. Great. And you're in the right place. You're right by the beach. It's perfect here. Thank you for having me. We are sitting in Open's space right now. I feel mm. like before we really dive into learning about you, that you should give us a little overview on what Open is. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. So Open is really uh, a mindfulness studio at its core, but... What we really believe in is that there are many ways to experience mindfulness. Mindfulness has been around for longer than 2,500 years. And specifically around the last 30, 40 years, it's kind of become part of the popular vernacular. 
But for many of us, we associate mindfulness as being this really rigid practice in which we have to sit and what we think is emptying our mind and being really peaceful and quiet. What we've done is we've partnered with uh, researchers, advisors, and you know our expert teachers to really find new ways to drop into that same place of presence and connection. And so we can do that through music, we can do that through sound, we can do that through our breath. And so all of our classes integrate these elements uh, into yoga classes, breathwork classes, and meditate and Pilates classes. So each practice will have this hybrid integration of breath, sound, music, and movement. And the uh, sum effect of all of that is this really embodied experience of mindfulness. So not something that's very cognitive, but something that we can just feel and take with us into the day. I missed one day, but I'm on like almost now a two-week streak of open classes. (laughs) And I have done and practiced breath work before, but I don't think I've ever found a platform that was, or that is, excuse me, as accessible, as open in terms of it offering me breath work options that kind of meet me where I'm at. And I feel like that is, you know, one of the most practical pieces of advice when it comes to establishing a new habit. It's like, rather than seeing that someone else has a 20 minute breathwork practice and say, I want also a 20 minute breathwork practice, like, okay, maybe eventually you can get there. But if you don't have one yet, start with one to three minutes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, maybe you don't need a 20 minute breathwork practice at all, right? I think it's, um, you know, breathwork specifically, it's so functional. Like if I'm feeling anxious, I could just do five deep breaths and, you know, regulate my nervous system that way. If I'm feeling tired, then I can do five really quick breaths and upregulate my nervous system. So it's so functional and we can take it with you wherever we go because it's literally sitting underneath our nostrils. And I feel like the thing with breath work that I'm still trying to like get over this hurdle with meditation is that breath work, it's like I have something that I am doing Mm. the entire time. So for someone who has heavy thinker energy, this really feels like I'm in my boat now. I'm like, oh, I have this exercise to do for the next three minutes. Like it's a task. Right, right. I feel as though I should work toward feeling as though I am better at meditation. (laughs) But the breath work is like a new adventure for me and I really dig it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are surprised to hear, like I also have heavy overthinker energy as well. and, And I always had that, you know, throughout my life. Breath work is for me, not a uh, an end in itself. It's a means to an end. It really gets us into our body. It drops us out of the habitual thinking and the planning and you know the doing, and it gets us primed to to meditate, to go into that place of awareness and stillness and, and meditation. When you combine the two, it's like a really powerful combination, right? You drop out of the the rat race, so to speak, and then you're able to experience meditation with a little bit more clarity and a little bit more sense of groundedness. I guess I didn't think about the potential for stacking them, like Mm -hmm. habit stacking, breathwork and meditation. And it's interesting now that you say that and the light bulb goes off in my head because what I was speaking about last week with my life coach was stacking my breathwork and my journaling. And at first, when I started this two weeks ago, I was journaling and doing then doing breathwork. And she said to me, what if you flipped it? Because I'm working, again, heavy thinker, trying Mm. to get to feel more often Mm. on unlocking that. So she said, what if you sit with yourself and calm and notice how that feels and then get to a place where you're reflecting? And in doing that, I've been less in my journaling, kind of writing down the steps of what I did yesterday and more thinking about how it felt as I went through the steps Mm. of what I did yesterday. So Mm. I really like this idea of stacking the breath work and the meditation. Yeah. I mean, traditionally in in ancient yogic lineages, that's how it was taught. You know, Mm -hmm. you would sit first, you would do the breath work. Uh, Sorry, you would actually practice first. Or I mean, there's different ways of doing it, but essentially there was the, the asana, the pranayam, which is the breath work. And then there's the, the meditation. And so whether that's doing the breath work, going into meditation, then going into practice or vice versa. Like it was taught sequentially and you can definitely do it these days for sure. Where were you when you first started practicing breath work and meditation? So I I was raised in Sri Lanka, actually. I was born in Sri Lanka and in Sri Lanka, there's a big Buddhist influence, you know, in that country. And so I was around spirituality for you know a big part of my um, 
childhood, but I never really understood it. You know, I just used to see monks coming in, chanting, meditating, and, and I would just be fascinated by how they looked. But then I migrated to Australia and in Australia, I really lost connection to, um, to Buddhism, to meditation, to that culture. And it wasn't until I was in my twenties when I had a pretty serious panic attack um, that led to a whole host of other health issues that I serendipitously found my way in a Buddhist meditation studio. And when I rediscovered it as an adult, it was a completely different experience because at that point I was suffering. I was going through a lot of health issues and I was looking for a way to, to get better, to get, to get healthier. And I didn't know at that point that the way to get healthier was to really understand my mind because my mind was creating most of the suffering at that point. And so when I rediscovered this ability to notice my thinking, notice the anxious thoughts as they were arising in my body, to notice, you know, the sadness, the loneliness, all of these things that were coming up, I then had a tool to be able to respond to that. And that tool was the tool that meditation really gave me, right? The awareness and then also the wisdom that it gave me. And so finding it at that point was so different to like being raised in the experience because I needed it and I was ready. And I think it's serendipitous when we kind of come into contact with these practices at times in our lives where it just really makes a difference. Can we unpack the circumstances around the panic attack? Absolutely. I love unpacking my trauma on, Let's do on podcasts. It. That's my favorite. That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I was, I was in the corporate world. I was in marketing and, and advertising. I, was burning the candle at a lot of a lot of ends, you know, and I don't think many of us are taught how to regulate our nervous system. Uh, most of us have low grade anxiety, you know, especially in in that environment and that culture. Uh, I probably also had ADHD, like a whole host of of things I was really unaware of. And then you combine the the stress and the anxiety of a high pressure job, which is what I was doing 60, 70 hours a week with lots of caffeine, <laughs> drinking two or three cups of coffee a day with like on Friday nights going and drinking and having very little sleep. Mm -hmm. And this kind of builds up. And in, for all of us, there is a point in time where you can't take that level of tension anymore. And it will come out in some way, whether it's uh, like blowing up it your partner, whether it's your body breaking down or whether it's your mind kind of having a moment. And for me, it happened at work. Um, and I literally just had like a breakdown at work. I started crying. I was emotional, didn't know what was happening. My, my arms were shaking. I literally thought I was about to, to die because I'd never heard of anxiety, to be honest. I thought it was something that people that are really messed up actually experience. And this was like, you know, 16, 17 years ago. So we don't, we never talked about it like we do now. Now it's pretty common. Everyone's got a therapist. Everyone's anxious. Like it's just such a normal thing. But back then it was very unfamiliar to, to all of us. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was a big pivotal moment in my life. And it led me down the path of seeing a therapist and speaking to doctors, speaking to psychologists. Um, but the majority of them at that time were just prescribing medication for these things. Mm. Um, and so... Uh, I have nothing against meditation, uh, medication at all, but mm, it was a very quick assessment of, oh, you're anxious, you should go and take this, or you know, you're depressed, you should go and take that, uh, and just rest. You know, it was a very simplistic, uh, reductionist kind of diagnosis of of my experience at that point. Um, but I'm also thankful for that moment and for that breakdown because that was a moment that life was like, hey, you need to look at yourself. Yeah, yeah, and what a beautiful kind of pivot on the perspective that you started with, I'm sure, to be able to look back at that moment and think about the path that it led you down and what that stress and that difficulty brought for you, what that did for you, how it happened for you. Yeah. And I think as a teacher, it's really hard to help people suffer less if you've never really suffered in that same way, you know, and I went through tremendous, you know, we ref I refer to suffering, but stress, anxiety, depression, um, and a lot of pain through my own resistance to emotions and things like that. And so, yeah, it is, you can look back on it and you can say it was a gift, but in the moment it's like, oh my God, like, will I make it out of this experience? Right. So for you, after you go through this hurdle moment, where does your life lead you professionally from this marketing job? 
Yeah, so I, I couldn't work for two years. You know, I was really sick. I, I had developed like an eating disorder and, and I was really sick and feeble. And I was essentially living um, at this ashram with my teacher for a period of time before my mother came and she was looking after me for, for a while. And I had some savings and it was dwindling every single day because I didn't work for two years. And I was literally down to like the last $300 or $150 or something like that. And um, I remember asking my teacher one day, I'm like, I don't know what I'm meant to do with my life. Like, you know, what I wanted before, like, I just can't see myself chasing money and climbing this ladder. And it just doesn't feel in my body like it's what I want to do. And he just looked at me and he's like, yeah, because, you know, you're, you're going to teach one day. And I was like, teach what? Like, being a meditation teacher wasn't sexy. Like, no one <laughs> even taught yoga. Like, it was like a weird sort of occupation that only hippies did. And I grew up in Australia, right? So it wasn't like a big thing like it was in L.A. And um, I used to just think he was like crazy. But... Um, you know, the, the next week he, I started helping him out in his classes and assisting. And, um, I started to maybe think, oh, maybe, maybe I could teach. Like, you know, I would get like $20 a class, which was like nothing. Right. And, um, one yeah, day but when you, when you have $150 to your name and you're getting $20 a class, that's not nothing. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, but I was so used to this different lifestyle, this six figure lavish lifestyle. Um, I, it didn't compute in my mind that this could be a feasible thing. Right. Um, but one day I came, um, to practice my teacher's class and he's like, oh, I can't teach today. Can you teach for me? And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, go and go and teach. And I'm like, uh, uh, okay. So I quickly started writing down all these notes. And as I was about to walk in, he took the notebook to go and teach. And then he came and sat and he wasn't sick. He was just kind of there observing me or whatever he was doing. But that was really my, my first class. And um, from then on, he kind of every now and again got me to come and teach. And I eventually went and did different trainings and I started traveling um, throughout the world, sitting with different meditation masters. The rest is kind of history. But, you know, in 2016 or 2015, I opened uh, a meditation studio in Australia. It was called A-Space, which was at the time Australia's first drop-in meditation studio. And that really began like a, a very different path, which was merging this entrepreneurial side of me and the, the meditation side of me and led me down the path of co-founding Open. When you say that you started traveling around the world and meeting and studying under different experts, how did you go about finding and then solidifying these opportunities and also supporting yourself during these travels? Yeah, yeah. So I started supporting myself by teaching a lot of classes. You know, I was teaching yoga for a little bit. I was teaching meditation. I was doing privates. I was doing literally everything I could. Um, and at that time, it was like a real joy because it was something I was deeply passionate about. It was something that I knew would help people. I think that was the big state shift within myself like before working marketing and advertising i didn't really feel like i was i was necessarily helping or, or being of service to people in a way where i knew that specifically you know helping people with their mental health was and so there was a lot of energy that i had in my body but then finding these teachers wasn't hard because you know the meditation world is fairly small and you have like certain teachers like sharon salzberg joseph goldstein jack hornfield and specific centers like spirit rock insight meditation society where they're just legendary you know for, for having teachers that had really traveled from india and, and sri lanka in the you know 40 50 years ago and had blown up meditation in the west and, um, and some of it was also very serendipitous. Like, you know, me finding my teacher was just very serendipitous. It wasn't like I searched for him. I was on Facebook one day and a friend posted this video about this teacher. And as soon as I saw him, I'm like, there was something about his, his voice and the way he spoke. I'm like, I got to sit with him. And I ended up, you know, practicing with him every day for five years and sitting with him for like eight, nine years. And so, you know, when I, I genuinely believe when you're in alignment, with life, when you're in a sense of flow with life, things tend to just be presented to you on your path. And um, I felt very fortunate that that's what's been the case. And when you say you sat with him for eight or nine years, for someone who's never heard that terminology before, what does that mean? It just means I practice with him. You know, I would come and um, practice his class every day. I would go and, you know, go to lunch with him. And, and just, I think in the world of meditation, you learn so much from your teachers by how they uh, relate to life. And there's a little bit you learn from, you know, practicing with them, but just how, how do they relate to difficulties in their life? How do they relate to um, money? How do they relate to arguments and, you know, relationship breakdowns? Like uh, learning so much 
from those moments by being next to him was even more beneficial than actual the meditation practices that I did with him. And it seems as though you would have to be open to a certain level of vulnerability when you're the person that's leading other people through this journey. Was that something that came naturally for you as a teacher or was that something that you had to get more acquainted with? I think it's something that I've learned over the years. Like I, I, I also have I'm working with my emotions. I think that's like a real block for me. And over the last few years, I've actively tried to explore emotions from a somatic level. Um, but, you know, as I started teaching, it's this balance of like, how much of yourself do you share where it doesn't become about you? Because ultimately, when you're teaching thousands of people, you don't want to go there and vomit your relationship issues or like, you know, all these <laughs> different things. It's like, this is what I've learned from this experience. And this is what this tradition has taught me. And this is what science has told me. And this is what research has taught me. And then you blend all of those things to, to give something to someone that's beneficial. You know, you can't go in there and necessarily think everyone wants to hear this super spiritual definition of something or this highly pragmatic scientific explanation. It's like taking from all these different worlds um, rooting it in something that is like not you you haven't just made up it's actually proven and then delivering it in a way where people feel like it's accessible it's it's understandable and relatable I think that's a skill that is something that you step into a little bit the more that you put yourself in this position to be a teacher regardless of what it is that you're teaching there's beauty and vulnerability but to your point of not making it all about you that mm. takes time and understanding and yeah. I remember recently I was going through my fair share of personal things as well and I was speaking to someone and I said how do I show up for my community when I feel like I'm hiding mm. so much at this moment and the answer was simply saying hey, I am dealing with a lot right now and I know that I can't be the only one. So coming together with that level of vulnerability was a really great opportunity and wasn't just a great opportunity for them, but a really beautiful opportunity for me to empower all of these people who I'm so grateful have told me how much I've offered them to then come back and be here for me. Mm. And I think what you demonstrated there was your humanity and people can relate to that, you know, and whether it's a meditation teacher, you know, podcaster, this, this public figure, people really want to come into contact with a human <clears throat> because so much of our humanity is under threat right now because we're working under conditions that are really stressful. We're hyper-driven, a lot of us, right? So from the moment we wake up, we're go, go, go. We have a sense of disconnection from what makes us truly human. And, you know, we talked about emotions a lot. That's one element of it. We talk about suffering a lot because that's also part of our human experience. Like there's no way to actually avoid that. One of my favorite uh, teachers that is also a good friend of mine, his name's, his name's Johnny Pollard. He once uh, said, and he gave me this beautiful concept of sharing from the scar, not the wound. And the the concept is really talking about moments where there's been some sort of healing that's gone on, right? And that's the scar. There's been some sort of healing that's occurred. And then from that healing, we can share the lesson that we've learned from that. Oftentimes as, as teachers, like I've fallen into that trap of going into a class or going into a live stream and the wound is still raw, <laughs> you know, whether it's a, a breakup or whether it's something that's happened to my health or whether I've lost someone. And then speaking from this really deep wound where the lesson really hasn't fully formed yet, just like the scar hasn't fully formed yet. And so it's something that I bring to, to my teaching is that I'll never really share something unless that I've really processed that, unless I've really understood that and there's a deep lesson within that. Now that doesn't mean that we can't acknowledge the fact that we're going through some stuff. And that's a really beautiful trait, you know, to be able to vulnerably say, hey, I'm going through heartbreak and uh, I'm feeling it, I'm processing it. I don't really have all the lessons yet, but I just want to name it and just want to acknowledge it. And at that moment, people are gonna be like, wow, Emily's a human. Like, that's, that's wild. Who would have thought? Who would have right? thought? This real person speaking to us three times a week. You know, also with that, the acknowledgement is so healing in itself, right? Because if we don't take the time to admit what's happening around us or how we're feeling, then you can't do anything. You can't move forward until you start 
there. So starting there is so important. And that in itself can certainly be a hurdle. I mean, you can't change what you can't see. Yeah. Like that that's really it right so in order for us to to transform anything to change anything we first have to recognize that it exists and um and what you said is is exactly it we've got to name it we've got to talk about it yeah so you start a space in you say australia so much different than i say australia australia i can't even pretend that i'm gonna say it like you can uh, say it say it australia <laughs> you miss the whole middle part of the word do i i mean it's just your accent i've never heard that but i'm gonna i'm gonna australia australia yeah (laughs) have australians been saying australia wrong this whole time no they're saying it right and i'm just saying it like i'm from the northeastern (laughs) united states um so you start a, a space in australia and then how does that journey bring you to open yeah, so A-Space was a really beautiful, heartfelt project with me and a dear friend that we started. Um, we both I had had this wild idea when I was actually in New York once, um, and we, we were exploring all these different yoga studios and meditation studios. And at that point, we were just doing pop-ups around Australia and, and working with large organizations. And we started to see this community form everywhere we went. And I'm like, I want to give them a home. Like, I think we can launch a studio. <laughs> and my co-founder at the time is like, with what money? Like, we have, like we were just two friends that had this wild idea. And I'm like, I don't know, but like, I feel like if we start, it'll something will happen. And we literally went home and I kept on pushing him to do it. And he succumbed to it. And we took our two credit cards and we maxed our two credit cards. We <laughs> found like this really beautiful little studio at the back of a psychology practice. And we just invested everything that we had into this and because it was the first thing it was the first of its kind in australia we got a lot of publicity lots of awareness and we were managed to attracting well we managed to attract some really incredible teachers and so this little thing became like a, a big thing right but we really weren't prepared for that we weren't prepared for it to be um what it became which was people traveling from interstate abroad to come and practice with us but also we didn't really have the experience the business experience the venture experience to to scale that and eventually the pressure of not making much money and all the money going back into the business really took its toll mentally on both of us and and on our relationship and he ended up leaving the the company and, and i ran it for the last 18 months and November 2019, I was fundraising to, to launch an app and I was fundraising in, in New York and I had found investors, I'd found new partners and we we're about to do this thing. I was so excited and I had a girlfriend we were living in New York and I told her, um, all right, I'm going to be back in a few weeks. I'll close everything up and I'll come back. And this was February 2020. Oh my God. Right. And so when I got home, that's when New York specifically got hit really bad with, with COVID and everything changed, not just for me, but for the whole world. And, you know, my investors were like, hey, we're a bit nervous about jumping in right now. Let's wait a few months. I'm sure it'll pass. And uh, my partners were also like, whoa, like we're going to hold for a bit. And then obviously that didn't, you know, last. It lasted for two years, even more. And in that period, um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was like, okay, cool. Like, can I do this without my partners and my investors? I'm like, no. Do I want to keep operating at this level as a solo founder i'm like no and then again serendipitously a mutual friend of me and ride who's the ceo of of open introduced us and open was at that point a small breathwork pop-up based out of san francisco they had dreams of, of launching an online product but they were just live streaming on zoom at that point and i joined as an investor uh, sorry not as an investor as an advisor um just helping them set up all their operations helping them recruit um and in that period, over the course of like three months, me and Rai became really good friends. I really bought into the vision of, of Open and he really appreciated my experience and background. And we just decided to kind of merge forces. And with that, I moved to California, which I had no intention of doing because I was such a New Yorker at heart. My mm-hmm. girlfriend was there, all that. And um, moved there in the middle of the pandemic. And we launched an app in, in 2021, sorry, 2020. We launched our first pop-up studio here in LA and, you know, the last few weeks we've signed a lease on our first Venice studio and we're about to launch like a a nationwide tour across, you know, New York, Miami, Austin, um, 
we've got an incredible team of teachers. We've got an incredible team, incredible engineers, product. And um, it's a really, really exciting time. And as I sit here and I'm, I'm saying all of these things, I'm like, holy, can I swear? Holy shit. Like, <laughs> how did I get here? And, and how did all of these different things really culminate in, in me being at this particular place at this particular moment in time speaking to you? What would you say as you have these thoughts is the most prominent feeling that you have reflecting on the past two years and where do you feel it in your body? I love that question. Um, I feel like a really deep gratitude, like in, in my, my chest, yeah, in my heart. Um, I also feel like there's this element of surrendering that we need to sometimes do on this path as either entrepreneurs or, or athletes or, or spiritual practitioners, like so much of life where we're fighting against something, you know, where we're battling up against whether it's tiredness or our own mental health, or, you know, we're just working, 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 hustling, hustling, hustling. What I'm really trying to work with in my own life at the moment is just surrendering. And, and that's not like a poetic spiritual thing, but it's actually just asking myself, where do I need to let go in this moment? Whether it's a conversation with a partner or investor, you know, where can I just let go and where can I just go with a, a flow? Um, and it's not easy for me because I'm not used to that. I'm used to hustling. I'm used to working really hard. And as I look back now, you know, two years in, there have been moments where I've just had to let go. Like the, the decision to, to move to, to California and join open, it wasn't an easy decision because I had a lot of offers at that point, but I tuned into my body and I tuned into what I felt and I was like, okay, this feels like it's the right thing to do. And then, you know, moving from SF to California was another big decision. I'm like, oh, this feels like the right thing to do. Um, you know, when it comes to recruiting people, it's like I, I drop into feelings so much more than I ever have in my life. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, more often than not, just following and surrendering and letting go has, has led me down a really good path. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, has surrendering to feeling and leading with feeling ever led you astray? I think what I'm really unpacking is how much, how many of the big decisions I've made in my life have been through what I felt or have been through what I thought I should do. Mm. You know, and I, I look at decisions I've made in relationships as an example, and there have been decisions I've made through my head. It's like, oh, I should do this. I should say this. I should be with this person or not with this person. Um, but I'm really unpacking those moments in my life where I've trusted my my body and trusted what I felt. And those moments that I have, it's been incredible. Like it, the felt sense of going into this studio where I met my teacher, it wasn't an, a, a head decision. It was just something pulling me to that moment. And it was my illness plus this feeling that, oh, I've tried all of these things why don't I try meditation, you know? And um, I think for for my life and, and for a lot of students' lives, what I'm really teaching now is to trust the body, you know, because we don't often have a good relationship with our body. We have a very discombobulated relationship because of trauma or emotional wounding or just a general disconnection from our body. And so learning how to first relate to the trauma, relate to the experience, to create space for that, to heal that, and then becoming a friend to the body. Because once we're a friend to our body, it's just a different state of flow. You know, it's it's being with someone and being able to just relate on a, on a very easy level and not kind of thinking, oh, I, I should talk to this person this way. I should present myself this way. I should try to sound smarter. <laughs> like, you know, and I've been in podcast episodes where I have, I've done that. I'm like, oh, I should say this and this. But like, you know, in this moment with you, it's like, no, let's, I'm just going to be myself. And, yeah. And that feels good for me. Taking a break from today's episode to talk to you about my sponsors. First up, Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't, which means a lot of salt and no sugar. It is so, so important to replenish your electrolytes on the regular, whether it be after having a few glasses of wine, working out, or simply just keeping up with an active lifestyle. It's got a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams sodium, 200 milligrams potassium, and 60 milligrams magnesium. 
Fun fact, when you sweat, the primary electrolyte lost is sodium, and athletes can lose up to seven grams per day. When sodium is not replaced, it is common to experience muscle cramps and fatigue. For me, I get headaches, and that is just not in the cards for me. With Element, you can prevent these common symptoms of electrolyte deficiency, plus it tastes great. I, myself, huge fan of their new grapefruit flavor, but they've got so many options, ranging from citrus and orange to raspberry raspberry, watermelon, chocolate, the list feels endless. Element is offering a free sample pack to all Hurdle listeners. All you've got to do is pay $5 shipping. Simply head on over to drinkelement.com. That's drinklmnt.com slash hurdle to get yours today. Again, that is drinkelement.com slash hurdle. Next up, let's talk about Open. Open is a digital mindfulness platform combining breathwork, meditation, and movement. I have been on the Open train for about a month now, doing about three to five minutes of breathwork every morning. And since having this conversation with Minaj, I have since added a five-minute meditation practice after it. Trust me, I if you were to tell me that I would be doing 10 minutes of mindfulness work every morning, like last year, I would have laughed at you. I have never successfully in my life incorporated a regular mindfulness routine in my morning to-dos, never until starting open. I love to do my back-to-back breath work and meditation sitting on my couch. It's right after I make my Nespresso. I sit there and I come into my body and have some time just to feel before I reach for my journal and get to the next stage of my morning routine. Huge fan of their platform. I love all of the different facilitators and practitioners on there. And I feel an overarching sense of calm now that this is something I'm finally incorporating regularly. Open has unlimited live and on-demand breathwork, meditation, yoga, Pilates, and more. It's designed for all levels and they partner with musicians, producers, sound designers, DJs, and curators to co-create classes for an immersive experience that takes you deeper into your practice. You're gonna love it. Let's take a class together. Open is giving Hurdle listeners 30 days free when you head on over to withopen.com slash hurdle. Again, you can join me on Open by going to withopen.com slash hurdle. Let me know what y'all think and I'll see you in class. You spoke about the difficulty that you went through when you had your panic attack and the two years that followed that, and then the difficulty that came with 2020 and the pandemic. In the pandemic, did you feel as though you had to reach for some of the same tools that you acquired and developed back when you were working with your illness and trying to come to terms with how to move forward from that? Yes, yes and no. Um, so I was actually writing my first book at the same time. And so my book, Still Together, was about connection, right? And here <laughs> I was disconnected to literally everyone. And so as I was writing that book, I had to really think about, okay, how do I feel connected to other people in, in this moment? And Zoom became like a lifesaver, like reaching out to people, became like my work because I'm so used to just naturally being around people. I didn't realize I had to actually call people and be like, Hey, like, how are you? Like, you know, what's happening? You know, this is what I'm feeling. But also, um, I had to actually think outside the square. I was so rigid in my practice that, you know, Buddhist meditation and mindfulness were my only thing, you know, and, and yoga, they were my only things. But then I'm like, Oh, hang on. Breath work is actually way more powerful i was only doing it like you know once every now and again back then but just this ability to drop out of the mind and viscerally come into contact with my physical experience which is what breathwork did really started to transform my experience journaling which you know became a new part of my experience dancing actually became one of the biggest experiences in my life because when i'm most enjoy like i would dance and it was something i hadn't done for 20 30 years but every morning i would wake up because i was living in australia i had this beautiful warehouse space with a friend of mine i'd put on my favorite song and it's a song from the 90s um what's the song it's called everybody everybody it's great (laughs) and i would just like dance 
And it was, I, I felt ridiculous at that point because I'm like a grown ass man dancing in my bedroom. <laughs> but I just realized, wow, like it actually just gets me in my body. Like I'm not thinking when I'm dancing. And it became like a really um, special tool for me to, to start my day just feeling like I'm existing underneath my chin. Is this like a jumping around dance? I'm just trying to like envision this. No, no, this is like I'm getting sexy with it. Like I'm, I'm just like moving my hips. I got a couple of body rolls happening. I might put on like a little shirt, get funky. Like there'll be days like, you know, there'll be days I'll just get up and I'll jump around. But no, like I would just want to feel really connected to my body. And, and when I dance, I just, I feel really embodied. So I love that. What time of day is this? Like how early? Seven thirty, eight o'clock. Okay, so yeah. like the neighbors are already up. Neighbors are already up. I don't blast the music. I'm I'm not that crazy with it. But you know, sometimes I'll have headphones. I had a I had like a a, a housemate for a period of time, so I'd you know have my earbuds in. But you know, it's just we all have these different ways of dropping into our body. For yeah. you, it might be running or, mm -hmm. or yoga. For some people, um, and for me, it was a very it was something that I didn't have to think about. You know, and it felt ridiculous and that's why I did it. I'm like, mm. it feels ridiculous. So I'm just going to see what it's like. And it was great. What would you say was one of the biggest hurdles after moving to LA, stepping into this new role with open? It was f loneliness. Yeah. Actually, that was the biggest thing. I was so used to having such a beautiful community, not only from a space, but also friends I'd grown up with in Australia. And I moved to LA where I knew very few people. And, you know, my relationship, my girlfriend at the time moved out to New York with me. And, you know, we, we broke up after like six, seven months. And then I was by myself. And I realized, wow, like, I actually have to invest in friendships. I have to invest in community. I have to put myself out there. I have to reach out because it's not something that we can just take for granted, right? And um, when I didn't even know I was lonely until I just realized one day, like I was unhealthy. I was putting on weight. I was eating bad food. I was just feeling sad. And then I just really made a commitment to myself that I want to connect with other people, not from a selfish point of view that I want to get something, but I want to actually learn like, okay, let me go out to the East side. Cause you know, LA people, West siders don't go to the East side and vice versa. I'm like, let me explore some friends over there and see what life is like for them. And let me go dancing with friends downtown. And, and let me just go to these pot like dinners at, and I became like this yes man, everything people were inviting to, I would go to. And it really got me out of this rumination in this this sense of like overthinking and overanalyzing and i was able to really be with other people and and in that interaction of being curious about someone else's life i was out of my own experience and i was trying to connect to someone else's experience which inadvertently dropped me into my own experience right like hearing about someone talk about their sense of loneliness i was able to reflect i'm like oh yeah yo i have that too and mm -hmm. it became like this really beautiful thing and now la feels like home and I never would have said that because I used to always think it was cheesy and it was like I had to drive everywhere and people wear bright clothes and like all these different things but you know I I really appreciate that moment for reminding me of of connection as being something that's vital to our life it's interesting that moment you spoke about just now sharing how you realized you're like hey I'm unhealthy I think a lot of people, or I'm sure a lot of people listening to this right now can really relate to that moment. And you were able to do something about it, but many people feel paralyzed mm. in that moment. For someone listening who may currently be there, who may feel paralyzed, what advice do you offer them? You're not alone. I think we can feel like our experience is happening just to us. Like we are the only one going through depression or anxiety or even worse like it is us that's suffering but the reality of the nature of all of our lives is that we will all suffer right and if we can actually remember that if we can remember that as a byproduct of our evolution our ancestors have suffered <laughs> and they have overcome that and so it is in our dna that we can overcome suffering like it's that's not poetic or spiritual it's fact like we can overcome things and then realizing in the next moment, we get to choose what happens, right? If we can become aware of our thinking, our, our thought patterns, our spiraling thoughts and all of this and be aware of that, we can be like, oh, okay, now what's next? 
how can I choose something that's going to lead me towards less suffering or more happiness? And when we make that next decision, we're already in a place that's better than the place we were at. And from that place, we're again presented decisions, right? Like, what's the next thing? Or should I eat? I was like smashing breakfast burritos every single day, drinking coffee three, four times a day. And there was a moment I'm like, this is probably not healthy for me. <laughs> and, and that moment I realized, oh, I'm going to have a smoothie or eat, eat healthier. I started to feel better straight away. And from that, I'm like, oh, I'm going to start going to yoga classes again. Oh, I started to feel better from there. I'm like, oh, maybe I'm, I'm going to go and catch up with friends now. And, and you start to fall into this little cycle of making decisions that are just better for you and are healthier for you. And you become wiser, which is ultimately what mindfulness gives us. It's not just feeling good in the moment. We start to feel wiser. And when we're wiser, we make better decisions. Right. And they, these realizations, these understandings can be difficult for anyone uh, also being vocal about maybe how you feel. I would imagine that maybe for you as a man of color, even a little bit more. Can you share a little bit about uh, how that may have made your experience a little bit more intricate? Absolutely. And thank you for, for asking me about that because... You know, 2020 wasn't just all about the pandemic. It was about like the racial, up, the reckoning really that we had. And, you know, for me as, as an immigrant migrating from Sri Lanka to Australia, growing up in very barren conditions and the place I, I grew up in, I often refer to it as arguably the most racist part of Australia. Um, and then kind of coming into coming into this reconciliation of who I am in this world and how the world sees me, um, you know, how opportunities don't come my way. And, you know, there's a lot of other things that people of color have to navigate beyond like the normal experience. And we all suffer. Yes. And not that anyone's suffering is better than, you know, another one, but there's a, like a nuance to it and different layers to it. And so, my experience as a man of color is that I would often go into spaces where I didn't see myself reflected. Um, you know, going into these Buddhist places in the West where I was often the only man of color, often um, the youngest person as well. And having to look beyond the fact that, okay, I don't feel like this teacher is necessarily speaking to me, but there is something I'm going to extract from this moment. And when we launched A Space as an example, our focus was on accessibility. Like we had to speak a language that everyone could relate to. And we had to show people that they were, they were welcome here and they felt safe here. So the language that we used had to, had to change. And at open is the same thing. Like we have a representation, um, not just across our teachers, but in within our company as well. And it's reflected in our branding and it's reflected in who we attract to all these audiences. I mean, I don't think it's not it's not lost on me that Open is co-founded by three men of color. Mm -hmm. um, and in the wellness world, that's pretty wild to actually have that experience, to have entrepreneurs of color with a product that's for, for everyone. And so a lot of learnings, you know, even migrating from Australia to the US and learning about the history of America and how nuance that is and how we have to change how we speak we have to change how we show up we have to be in recognition of people's lived experience whenever we teach a class and that's as simple as saying sometimes hey i would always say in australia hey, when you're ready close your eyes let's practice but for a lot of people people don't feel safe closing their eyes here huh. so to have that that understanding to be like okay if you feel safe close your eyes if not just shift your gaze down like they they are things that you learn if you have an interest in making what you're doing accessible to everyone you have to really understand the lived experience of everyone i feel like that example is so strong this like people might not feel safe closing their eyes so it's almost as though i'm curious as to like what other considerations maybe that you have taken into account when it comes into creating the programming for open as it continues to evolve and I think you said it in your last comment, like it continues to evolve, right? Like nothing is, is static. But I think for me in my own personal life, having a, a better understanding of trauma has really um, changed the way that I teach, um, specifically because I'm, I'm speaking a lot more to the body these days than I was. And, and when I first started teaching, it was all about the mind. But in my own life and in my own teaching, I'm, I'm seeing that there's a disconnect from body and mind. And for, for most of us to heal our trauma, 
that trauma exists in the body, right? It, it exists within the fascial tissues, exists within the deepest layers of our lived experience. And so if I want to teach people to really transform their life, I have to speak about that. And when I speak about that, it's very tenuous. Like it's very, it's challenging, right? Because um, you don't know how people are going to respond to that. And, you know, we're on like a live platform where there are thousands of people sometimes in class. I don't know who's going to show up. Whereas in a classroom, you might see your friends and people you practice with. So, you know, in environments where I'm familiar with people, I, I tell people, hey, have a look at the room. Like notice where your exits are. Notice that you're in control of this practice. And if your breathwork practice is activating you too much, you can slow it down. Like you can stop. You can, you can regulate your own nervous system. And I think that ability to transform the power dynamic of it being like, hey, I am not going to transform your life. You are going to transform your life. You are in control. You have this, the tools, the wisdom, the understanding to heal whatever needs to be healed yourself and putting the the putting the power in the hands of the student um whereas you know for me coming through the very you know rigid uh, conservative and um, old school way of practice it was so much about reverence to teachers and i still have that and i think that's really important but i think we also have to give agency to the student now and to tell the student that there is a whole array of skills that are now part of their toolkit that they can use and trauma now is a lot more of a requirement than it may have been five years ago and definitely 10 years ago and definitely 30 years ago and we need to be able to consider that in how we approach our wellness practices requirement in what way well, we have to just, as a teacher specifically, yes. right? Okay. Um, it's we have to, and requirement might have been a very strong word. Yeah. But I think it's a consideration. If you are doing healing work, um, like I'll speak about, like you know, people of color. Um, as a man of color, if you go in there, if I go into a class and the teacher's like, "Let's cultivate some love and light. Let's be free," and I'm like. Your what? face just now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? I'm like, free for who? Right. Like, do I feel free in my body in this part of the world at this moment in time? And who answers that question might have a very different response, right? And it's just this nuance. It's a real, it's a nuance because you could go into a completely white audience and say that and it might be like, yeah, let's be free together, right? Or you go into a completely black audience and they're like, yo, <laughs> um, like who, free for who? Mm -hmm. And so that might land, but it also might not. But for a teacher to, to have an understanding of that is just important yeah. because they then get to choose how they approach that experience. You mentioned the word toolkit. What is in your toolkit to navigate and process trauma outside of dancing? and your practice yeah and so my, my practice has also evolved right my practice now involves exercise like physical exercise yeah right? give us like some insight into like what your wellness situation yeah. looks like right now um yeah i mean so as, as soon as i wake up i i meditate um i'll do breathing exercises the breathing exercises just drop me into my body um and from the breathing exercises i'll meditate for 20 30 minutes focused on a practice that comes into contact with what I'm feeling somatically. Um, from there, I'll walk outside. I'll walk for 15, 20 minutes. I get sunlight as soon as I wake up. And thankfully, I'm in LA, so it's always sunny here. Um, and then I'll do something for my heart. You know, I'm, And what I mean by that is I'll do something intense like cardio or running or exercise. And straight away, I'm like, oh, okay, I feel in my body. I feel connected. I can breathe. And then I try to eat well throughout the day. And, and my vice is food. Like when I'm emotional, I'll eat bad food and I'll consciously eat to the point where I'll feel sick. Mm -hmm. And so I'll know, I know that when I'm out of alignment, that's my, that's my thing. So I create the conditions that I don't fall out of alignment. So um, another thing is being on my phone or being in social media. I, I'll get anxious in my body when I use it for 20, 30 minutes. And that's my cue to, to log off so i try to limit social media to like 20 or 30 minutes a day later on not first thing in the morning i'll try to eat foods that i know um, fuel my day and don't deplete my energy and i'll do like an afternoon practice as well which is usually like 10 15 minutes um, and i prioritize 
catching up with people. Um, not to the point that it becomes overwhelming, but I make sure that I do something that's not work related because I can also become a workaholic and, and that can be an outlet for me. So meditating, getting out in nature is really important. Eating healthy foods, drinking enough water and just connecting to my breath. I love the note of being aware of your environment because I think that some hear that and they're like, oh, well, what kind of life is that if you don't want to keep X or Y around? But it's not as though you don't allow yourself X or Y. Mm. Like it's not like you, uh, I don't know, it's someone's birthday and you're not going to have a piece of birthday cake, mm. but you might not always keep a cake inside your on your kitchen counter. Right. And right. so I appreciate that recognition and that level of awareness and also the opportunity to articulate this is how I feel when I do X. Mm. So if you know that eating some kind of way doesn't make you feel good or not connecting with people doesn't make you feel good, then articulating that and then figuring out how to make it a priority, it takes diligence. Mm. And it doesn't mean that you won't ever fall off of this bandwagon and you will never slip again. But recognizing that is so powerful to help you get into a space where you do feel like you can be more productive, happier, live a better quality of life. Yeah, I really, I really love that you said that because I think what adds to our suffering is the thoughts we have about our suffering as well, mm. right? For example, my teacher, when we would go out after a class, he would order cakes for everyone and coffee. And I'm like, yo, like, shouldn't, like, this gonna, and he's like, just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. And like, you know, obviously we wouldn't have that three, four times a day, but just being able to, to first of all, say to ourselves, okay, I'm feeling this way, become aware of it and acknowledging that. That's fine. We can experience that in the body. We can, we can feel our anxiety, right? But then when we attach the story around, I shouldn't feel this, that's when it becomes like a mental issue for us because now instead of the physical symptoms of anxiety, we've now got the mental burden of anxiety. And you can relate that to other things, right? If, we're, if we had a, a, a bad time at work, a, a meeting that went, didn't go well or a project that didn't get well, we add this additional layer of suffering and story to it that just prolongs that experience. So mindfulness, which is what you're talking about, is really becoming aware of what is occurring. Okay, oh, I'm feeling this. Can I be with it? Can I be compassionate to the fact that I'm feeling something that my ancestors and everyone in the world will feel? And then can I let, let it go? Can, like, can I not let the story become what fuels this experience? And that takes practice and that takes effort and it takes some gentleness, right? Which again, a lot of us aren't used to being. We're not used to being gentle with ourselves. I also love what you said about prioritizing connection and understanding the importance that it has in your life as someone else who can really relate to the work, work, work mm. mentality. I have made it a point to not over schedule and not spread myself too thin, but strategically place moments of connection throughout my week, ideally like thinking about them mm. toward the beginning of the week so that I can make sure they're dispersed in a way that fills me up. And also owning my no mm. and recognizing that although I'm not, I'm not a flaky person, but I in recent years more than ever, and I think many can relate to this after the pandemic, have certainly recognized if I have something on deck and I know that I can't be fully present there and it's actually not going to be good for me on this particular day. Mm. And it's not that I don't want to see this person or do this thing, but it would be better for everyone involved if I push it or reschedule yeah. having some grace with that because I used to be a, well, I'm not flaky. Yeah. So I shouldn't cancel this. Right. But now it's like, no, I'm actually saying this and articulating my boundary for both of us, for both of our betterment. And and you're saying that from a place of compassion. Totally. Like for yourself and for the other pe uh, for the other person, right? Like it's love, it's actually self-love to say that, oh, I need this right now. I need to just stay in. I need to just have a quiet night in. And that's okay. Uh, but I think like, again, culturally we're so conditioned to be on and to do things and to constantly be active that slowing down feels like unheard of. It feels like we're wasting our time. Yeah. But it's not it's it's love right slowing down actually is uh, it's love it's love we need love yeah outside of your work what brings you joy right now 
you know, like I, um, when I left Australia, I left my daughter, like she's, she's old now, but she's like she's in a full grown, old. full grown adult. But you know, it's, it's been really wonderful to, it's the first time, you know, leaving her. It's been really wonderful just, uh, connecting with her and seeing her navigate adulthood and to be able to relate to her as an adult, you know, like it's been really great to say, kind of see that, uh, and to see how humans evolve as well you know from watching a child become an, a teenager to an adult so that's given me a lot of joy just seeing her navigate all the challenges and the and the grace that's out there in the world but also like i'm i think i'm really coming into this full circle moment of having a lot of joy from my own experience of going through hardships finding moments where there's stillness and then knowing that life will again throw me out of the nest and really just finding joy in everyday moments like you know having a cup of coffee today and this weekend i said to you like it was my first weekend in la in a long time and just walking to the beach and i'm like whoa i don't need these big moments like this moment's really great i have a beautiful bed i can sleep in at night and have great friends and you know i think everyday moments really is the most simplistic answer is what i'm finding joy in and I think that, again, referencing the pandemic is certainly a sentiment that so many people mm. can relate to. Just finding these simple, small joys in the day to day and things that maybe previous to this last two year period, mm. we didn't take as much notice of or put as much stake into. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's and it, it just shows you how impermanent things are, right? Like yeah. we, we don't know how much we're going to miss something until it's gone and because everything is going to be gone at some point like how much can we drop into that appreciation while it's there right so right now uh how many users does open have yeah i don't know the exact number but it's i know it's growing like week on week i should probably know that as a co-founder <laughs> but um you know we've got a really big worldwide audience you know yeah. classes will have like hundreds of people per, per class it's just a real a real joy to see people kind of connect around this message of presence and connection so basically in practice thousands and thousands and thousands of people come to you for maybe a sense of calm maybe to do some introspective work. They see their facilitator standing in front of them. When you look in the mirror, what is it that you see looking back at you? Oh, wow. What a question. Um, I don't think they come just for me. They come for all of our beautiful teachers, but- <laughs> They're only here for you. You're right. I, um, you know, what I, what I see when I look in the mirror is someone that's just constantly evolving and learning. And it's just someone that is, coming into a sense of appreciation for the imperfection that stares back at it. You know, I, I'm a recovering perfectionist and I used to look in the mirror and I used to see so many imperfections physically when I looked in the mirror and I know I'm evolving because now I see things and I'm like, Oh, I love that little, you know, nose of yours. It's a little crooked from this football injury and oh, your skin that's looking great. And I know like my, my evolution with my body and my evolution with my spirit, uh, and my evolution as a human comes from just befriending the person that's looking back at the mirror. And so I see something that is um, like a relationship that is blossoming between me and that vision. For someone who struggles to get to that place of gratitude and appreciation, what advice do you have for them? How did you work on flipping that script? So set the intention. Like sometimes when you know we write a gratitude list, it can feel like it's just a very cognitive exercise, right? But if every day we wake up with the intention and we're like, um, oh, I'm going to be grateful for this interaction because I remember a time when no one wanted to interview me, <laughs> right? I remember a time when I was just like a quote unquote, nobody just, you know, teaching. Um, I think about like relationships. Like I remember a time when I wasn't in a relationship and I really craved the love of someone else. And so then in that relationship, you're like, wow, this feels really great. I remember a time where I didn't get six hours of sleep and I had six hours of sleep today. Wow. Like just that intention to constantly look at the world as something that is beautiful and not look at the world as something that we have to endure can really transform us. Can you be a realist and also someone who sees the world that way? There are going to be different schools of thought on this. Yeah. I have a feeling you and I might have the same approach. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think reality is holding the totality of our experience, right? There are beautiful things and there are ugly experiences. The ugly experiences, we can look back and think, wow, that was a really beautiful experience, right? The, the beautiful experiences, we can be like, whoa, that was actually really ugly experience in retrospect but to be able to to say that life contains both is really beautiful right in in totality is that we can acknowledge that life contains joy we have a saying in buddhist meditation you know life contains 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows it contains praise and blame gain and loss um, fame and not knowing who the hell you are and so this experience this little metaphor is that life contains all of it. And if we can just recognize that and we can come to terms and make peace with that, then our nervous system and our whole life changes because then we don't hold and grasp to things. We can let things go when they're not meant for us. We don't have to chase after things that are not meant for us. And there's an equanimity that we actually develop in our life. I love that. I love that. All right. Winding down. <laughs> Right now, you have an opportunity to offer yourself a piece of advice back when you are in the thick of going through this major life change. You're fresh mm. out of this panic attack. You're trying to figure out where you go from there. You've got $150 in your sure. bank account. Right now, from where you stand, what advice do you offer yourself with the wisdom you have now looking back on that hurdle moment? Hmm. I'm just closing my eyes and just dropping into my body to answer that. You know, I don't know if I have anything really poetic to say necessarily, but it's just this recognition that things change and it's not always going to be this bad and it's not always going to be this good. If you learn to regulate your nervous system, which for me was the biggest lesson, if I learned to move out of my anxious, hyper-vigilant state, if I learn to be a friend to my body, the world becomes a really wonderful place, you know, and, and to, to believe that the world is a wonderful place. And, e and even though there's tremendous suffering and we're seeing it now, our world can be a wonderful place and we can transform our experience. So glad we got to do this today. Yeah, this was really so great. So happy we got to sit down together. How do the hurdlers keep up with you? How do they keep up with open? Give me all the details. Yeah, I mean everywhere really. Like we you can connect <laughs> with us on on Instagram. Um, just look up open. Um, on the app store, look up open mindfulness. Um, with me, you can look up my name, M-A-N-O-J-D-I-A-S. Um, it's Instagram these days, right? No one like checks websites and stuff, right? Oh, yeah, for the <laughs> most part, but you can give them a URL. Right. Yeah. I mean it's just it's just O open like o-p-e-n.com, which is really annoying every time I have to spell out my email address. But um, yeah, check us out on the App Store. Check us out on Instagram, TikTok. And um, you know you can practice with us for free for a month to just see what we're all about. And so um, just try it. Try it. I'm over at Hurdle Podcast and at Emily Abadi. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. 